This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're right here every day bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. And of course, Carol, that's part of a team of 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. And Jason, you can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio every weekday. Or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. So you're listening right. to Bloomberg Business Week. Uh, yeah, Friday, wrapping up uh, the week, close to it. What do you make of this week? Um, man, I think there's a lot more about kind of getting back to work and getting back to normal. Yeah. I still think the city is going to be tricky for us, but I think, you know, we, we kicked it off with a really smart medical conversation. Uh, I think it's in our weekend show, but it just, you know, Manhattan versus the rest of the world. So we know Manhattan's trickier just because of the amount of people and just the structure <laughs> of how we work uh, in a very dense city. But I do feel a lot more optimism, and we certainly saw it play out in the markets. I mean, the Dow up 3.7% this week, the S&P, Jason, up more than 3%, and the NASDAQ up 2%. So there definitely was some enthusiasm in the markets. I do worry, though, about some of these other tensions, but I don't know how much is because it's an election year or how much is some real tensions that might complicate the economy bouncing back. Yeah, I worry about those tensions, too. I mean, I worry about the tensions that are geopolitical. I worry about the tensions that are domestic. You know, I mean, I think we all have watched with, you know, horror everything that went on uh, in Minnesota. And then, you know, you sort of factor in the social media aspect of this. And, you know, Twitter has been uh, at the fore of all of that. And man, do we have the perfect person to talk about that I have to say, our next guest, I always get energized when we talk with him. He's New York Times bestseller, his book, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. He also wrote The Algebra of Happiness, which if you have not read, you should. You should also check out his video uh, that's online. Uh, He's professor at NYU's Stern School of Business. Delighted to have back with us Scott Galloway, professor Uh, as we said, uh, at uh, the school, and he's on the phone in Delray Beach, Florida. Scott, so nice to have you here with us. How are you doing? Has your family, has your team, everybody, I hope, okay? Um, Well, well, thanks very much, Carol. Good to be with you. That's a generous question. Yeah, we're all all doing uh, really well. I think this is, if you're blessed to have a job, if you can work from home, if you're healthy, and if you're, and I check all those boxes, you're doing great. Well, go ahead, Jason. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, we were getting ready for this show today, Scott. And as a veteran broadcaster, podcaster, uh, first of all, as an aside, your voice has been in my head all week because I've been listening to a phenomenal podcast that you contributed to called We Crashed about WeWork. And maybe we'll talk a little bit about that later. But as we were getting ready for the show and watching everything that's going on with Twitter this week, both Carol and I were saying, we got to get your take on this. What's the thing that you're taking away from all this sturm and drang between the president and Twitter? Well, so I think I think Twitter's real crime is that its share price didn't go up. I think Facebook, if if Twitter is a dumpster fire of damage to the Commonwealth and a rage machine, uh, Facebook is a mushroom cloud. But Facebook appears to have entered into sort of this. Um, unholy deal with the president. So it, it appears that the president isn't going after Facebook. 
I think the opportunity here, the, the most elegant regulation is regulation that, that addresses the externality, which is an underlying business model that creates division and shows hate and teen depression and the likes, and at the same time unlocks shareholder value. I think this is an opportunity for Twitter to consider a subscription model. I think a large population of us out there who are somewhat addicted to Twitter and organizations who count on it to disseminate information would pay money for it. And if you look at the three most successful media companies of the last 10 years, it's Facebook, Google, and Netflix. And Netflix is not doing damage to our teens or to the Commonwealth because one is subscription and one is ad-driven. So I think this is time to address the underlying cancer here and not just the symptoms, and that is an ad-driven model as opposed to a subscription model. And I hope the Twitter board shows some leadership here and decides to move to a subscription model because the thing that is causing all the problems here is an ad-based model that encourages rage. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking about this, Scott, you know, the role of social media generally and Twitter in particular. You know, is it is it more social, you know, which means we kind of just let it let it do its thing or is it more news media you know when and that and with that comes responsibilities and accountabilities I mean I have to say I I love that Twitter I feel like finally has a little bit of a spine here in terms of saying there's a lot of information out there but how do you see it how would you teach it to your students well it it is a media company they've always been media companies and media companies have a responsibility and they they do try and be they say we don't want to be the arbiter of truth and i think most people want our our media firms or companies sitting at the helm of the bobsled of information for the population to at least try to be the arbiters of truth and that in fact truth is a thing and people immediately go to this notion of first amendment and what you have on twitter and facebook is that the more incendiary or damaging a statement the more engagement it creates, and thereby more Nissan ads, more shareholder values. So you have uh, anti-vaxxers, white supremacists, conspiracy theorists who, who are getting more than their fair share of oxygen because it drives shareholder value. And this is kind of the mother of all externalities. And if you look at the rise of white, white supremacy, if you look at extreme nationalism, if you look at the demonization of immigrants and incidences around hate crimes, if you give those, that data set and the rise of social media to a statistician, he or she will tell you that the two are correlated. Mm. And so we have an existential threat from the largest platforms ever constructed by man that are driven based on an algorithm that tears its social, uh, social fa- fabric. So the key is how do you maintain the great taste? That's all the shareholder value. There are some wonderful things about these networks. But get rid of the calories, and that is the rage. And again, I think it's moving to a subscription model. But I, I think if, you know, Jack Dorsey doesn't have an own, an own holy alliance with with um, the president, if his stock had been up tenfold, he would have shark repellent. In our capitalist society, to damage our society is bad, but to not have your shares go up is worse. So Twitter is in a difficult spot. Well, let's continue our conversation with Scott Galloway, professor of marketing at NYU Stern School of Business, New York Times bestselling author. His most recent book, which he joined our show to talk about when it came out, was The Algebra of Happiness, Notes in the Pursuit of Success, Love, and Meaning. And Scott, I got to ask you, you know, we talked a lot about Twitter and what could be done there and Facebook and what's happening. We've had a lot of conversations with folks in Silicon Valley who say Silicon Valley will be forever changed by this pandemic. Maybe in a good way, maybe not. What's your take? It's an interesting question. I think I think there's several dimensions there. I think on a a shareholder level, uh, I believe that 
big tech is going to consolidate or further consolidate the market, take advantage of the stress in the ecosystem, make some great acquisitions uh, of companies that are going to be on sale. And well, Facebook and Google will emerge from this pandemic instead of controlling 60 cents on the dollar, they control 70 cents on the dollar. And I think the market senses this. And if you owned $100 worth of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google on January 1, you know, I think are up 14 or 17% of the year. So the pandemic is a calling of the herd, and people are betting that the elephants that survive will have more foliage post uh, the, the calling when the rains return, and the big tech will be big winners here. Amazon is about to announce the first sort of fully vaccinated supply chain through a massive investment in distancing protocols, additional compensation, and they'll really be the only firm in the world that can offer kind of end-to-end near-COVID-free products, services, vendors, which when you think about it is just a staggering opportunity, not unlike what Disney is trying to do with professional sports, bringing sports back to sort of a COVID-free environment in Orlando. So I, I think on a shareholder level, they win. In terms of San Francisco, I think there's been a reversal of this incredible trend over the last 30 years where human and financial capital have flown, have fled into cities. Uh, as of January, that was estimated that two-thirds of all economic growth would happen in 20 super cities. That has probably been reversed. And it's mm. not that San Francisco and New York won't be great places to live or great places to do work. It's just they're likely going to see some cost pressure and housing prices come down. But the places that get crushed are the people who had to commute in uh, and have no reason to be in uh, paying $1,000 a foot for a home in Greenwich, Connecticut, or Short Hills, but can pay $300 a foot in any one of 100 different suburbs around the nation. I think those areas get just crushed. So that stays with us, right? We've seen it, you know, Scott, already from the big banks talking about, you know, not bringing workers back to the city and, and creating shops outside, you know, in the suburbs. And the same thing, as you said, you know, Silicon Valley, Twitter saying, hey, you, you want to work from home permanently, that's okay. So that is a significant shift going forward. It is, although it, it sort of, there's a lot of celebration among big tech companies, employees about work from home. And yeah. the worry or the fear I see is that if Mark Zuckerberg can move your job to Denver, he's likely going to move it to Bangalore, India. Right. And that is the ability to put on a suit, put on, you know, uh, to look good, get ready, manage the interpersonal relationships, navigate them, motivate a team in person, FaceTime, politics, whatever you want to call it at headquarters, is a skill. And to think that people are going to get to work from home and go to a low-cost environment for free is naive. This is going to be an opportunity yeah. for big tech to substantially reduce their human costs. And what we're going to end up with is the most valuable companies in the world with an even smaller full-time employee base. Keep in mind, the largest work-from-home company in the world right now is mm -hmm. Uber. Is that a good thing? Seven million of their driver partners technically work from home. Yeah. And as a result, Uber has been able to, to skirt minimum wage and, and health insurance regulations. So I think work from home is a double-edged sword. Yeah, we definitely saw the holes come out um, because of the virus. I do, we just got a, a couple of minutes or so left here, Scott. I do want to ask about um, your piece in the Washington Post where you talked about creating a U.S. Corona Corps, you know, akin to the Peace Corps and some other issues missions that are out there. Tell us about that. I think it's really provocative and um, could be something that really could make a difference. Well, I think there's a huge opportunity here, Carol. If you think about the, our economy is dependent upon 
pretty much, or our society to a certain extent, uh, is dependent upon the apex of the relapse in the fall, or hopefully the lack thereof. And the flattening the curve, if you will, is simply a function of testing, tracing, and then isolation. And I would argue the weak link is tracing, where we only have 2,500 tracers in the United States, mostly focused on foodborne illnesses and STDs. And it's estimated we need between 200,000 and 400,000. We also have about a third of the 4 million kids who are supposed to show up for freshman fall classes saying they're thinking about a gap year. So I wonder if there's an opportunity similar to the Peace Corps, similar to Mission, the Latter-day Saints, where we arm this kind of army of super soldiers who are largely, I don't want to say immune, but more resilient to COVID-19, train them in handheld technologies, and create an army of tracers similar to what South Korea did to suppress the curve. And not only would we ideally suppress the curve, but maybe award them tuition remission, give them more opportunities for college. And as importantly, uh, the reason we were able to, pr to pass such incredible brown groundbreaking legislation in the 50s, 60s, and 70s is over somewhere between a half and two-thirds of our leaders, elected leaders, had served in uniform together where they put country in front of politics. And I think we need that sort of reunification, if you will, and recognition that greatness is in the agency of others. And I think it's time to have a core of young people right. who serve their country. Yeah, there's been a tremendous disconnect yeah. um, with that. Um, Scott, thank you so much. I, I, truthfully, Jason and I were so looking forward to getting some time with you, and I really appreciate it. Um, and I wish we had kind of another hour <laughs> to talk with Scott. Take care, Scott. Be well uh, and uh, stay safe. Scott Galloway, professor of NYU Stern School of Business, on the phone in Delray Beach, Florida. His books, the bestseller, The Four, The Hidden DNA of Amazon, Apple, Facebook, and Google. And do check out The Algebra of Happiness, Pursuit of Success, Love, and What It All Means. Uh, as I mentioned, there's a great video, too, uh, out there online. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. And of course, you can always listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or watch us on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.